Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. On October 20th, 1973, President Richard Nixon told the Attorney General to fire Archibald Cox, who was investigating the Watergate break-in. The Attorney General wouldn't do it, and he left. His deputy took his job, but he also would not fire Cox, so he left too. It was called the Saturday Night Massacre. But the number three guy at the Justice Department did fire Cox. And 14 years later, that man was nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court. Was there ever any doubt in your mind that the people in this, of this country expected the special prosecutor to go forward and obtain the facts with respect to the matter of Watergate? That's Howard Metzenbaum, a senator from Ohio, questioning the nominee, Robert Bork, after President Reagan nominated him in 1987. Judge Bork, you've said a number of times that you went ahead and conducted yourself as you did because you were worried that there might be a number of resignations. Mm -hmm. The American government, the American people were totally distraught at this moment. And are you, you've, you've sort of suggested that because some lawyers might quit, plenty of lawyers around, I'm a lawyer, plenty of lawyers around, that because some lawyers might quit, even though they had had some experience in this area, that because of that, you went forward and did this act, which the court declared to, determined to be an illegal act. Isn't that pretty hard for the American people to accept? That became a very divisive battle over the appointment, and since then it seems to have gotten worse. David Orentlicker, a professor of law at the University of Nevada in Las Vegas, says the Bork nomination fight may have marked a turning point. Things got partisan, contentious. There was fear that Bork, a very conservative legal scholar, would overturn civil rights legislation and Roe versus Wade. And then there was the shadow of Watergate, which clearly frustrated Bork, who may have been testifying in 1987, but had trouble getting away from October 20th, 1973. Uh, I think it's maybe it's time now to tell the story. If we have, do we have time to tell the story? No. All right. I was sitting in my office Saturday afternoon writing a letter. Popular opinion opposed the nomination. There were televised hearings, and when people saw Judge Bork and heard his views, it made them very uncomfortable. But there, it also was, it was waged as a political battle in the way you see campaigns waged with television advertisements and advocacy groups. And, and that kind of approach to a nomination is not what you would want for something that's supposed to be above politics. But the Supreme Court was being reinvented, as it has been many times. And Orntlicker says it could be again. Indeed, very little about the Supreme Court is hard and fast. Do other countries do things differently? Yep. Could a president, whether Biden is elected or Trump is reelected, radically alter this institution? Yep. Should it be reinvented? Orntlicker thinks it probably should. The framers were very concerned about the concentration of power in, in a central government. They had lived under the tyranny of a king, and they recognized that it's not good to allow one person or one part of government to have a lot of power. So they wanted to divide up the power. And so we got our executive branch headed by the president. We got our legislative branch headed by the Congress, and then our judicial branch 
headed by the Supreme Court. And the idea is if you split power, then it's hard for anybody to become a dictator and give us an authoritarian government. Orentlicker says the founders would probably be shocked at how much power the court has ended up wielding. In the Constitution, it says nothing about how many justices are on the Supreme Court. Or It does say the president nominates and the Senate has to confirm. But Congress decided how many, first six. It has varied over time. And since 1869, we've been at nine justices. So when the issue arises, whether from proponents or opponents of the idea of Joe Biden packing the court and reinventing it, in Democrats' view, to become fairer, could he really do that? If the House and Senate passed a bill saying the number of Supreme Court justices will go from 9 to 11, 13, and he signs it, absolutely, that is within the power of Congress to do. Okay, so presumably, if Biden won and then the House and the Senate were Democratic and they passed this bill and he signed it into law and, and it said... There can now be 11 justices. All of a sudden, this 6-3 conservative majority, would the numbers would all of a sudden change overnight. Yes. The one other barrier would be the Senate would have to eliminate its filibuster rule. Because right now, with legislation, if you need to close off debate, so-called cloture, you need 60 votes to terminate debate and then proceed to a vote, at which okay. time it would be a majority vote of the Senate. But to close off debate, you need 60 votes. So while there's a good chance Democrats will have a majority in the Senate, it's unlikely they'll get to 60 votes. Right, right, right. I'm just trying to figure out what was written originally about when the Supreme Court was invented. Do you have to pick a lawyer? Could you just like, if you wanted to, could you pick your best friend as long as the Senate would confirm them? Yeah, there's really nothing. It's up to the president to decide. And... So we did see more variety. Now, everybody who's on the court has been a federal court of appeals judge. But that hasn't always been true. You had governors become Mm -hmm. justices. And so, you know, that's one of the questions people have raised. Would we be better off if we had people coming from a greater variety of backgrounds? You um, have argued there's actually something positive about having, which we did for a little bit, Um, An eight-person, sometimes evenly divided court, um, which happened because Republicans, you know, would not confirm Merrick Garland in an election year. What was good for the moment that we had this kind of 4-4 potentially court? Yeah, what was really good about that was the Supreme Court couldn't decide a case unless you had justices from both sides of the ideological spectrum. You needed conservatives and at least one liberal or liberals and at least one conservative to get to your five votes that you needed to issue a decision. And I think that's very important for a lot of reasons, but here are three very important reasons. One is when you have people with different perspectives coming together and deciding, you get better decisions. People who have studied how groups make decisions, one thing that they find consistently is that you get better results when you have people with different perspectives deciding together. Mm. And and we see that with juries. Juries work well because they have to be unanimous, and that means everybody has to participate. 
And if you compare juries that have to be unanimous with juries that can decide with the majority, you know, they ignore minority perspectives, they don't deliberate as long, and they're just not as effective. So you get better decisions. The other thing, you get decisions that are fair to everybody. Because if you're a conservative and there's a liberal majority on the court, then they're not going to be responsive to your perspective. And if you've got a conservative majority and you have a liberal view, the court's not going to be responsive to your perspective. And it, remember, it's supposed to be a neutral court, not have a, a partisan bias. And then the final thing is it would just diffuse this bitter partisan wrangling that we have over the court now because each side is maneuvering and trying to get that majority that it will allow it to ram its agenda through. And if we all understood that all decisions will reflect the views of conservatives and liberals, then there would be nothing gained by this excessive partisan battle. Um, you write that Europe actually has many countries in Europe have created a kind of Supreme Court structure that somehow avoids a lot of this partisanship. Um, how do they do that? Yeah, they do it in two important ways. One is how they select their justices. Instead of having a majority vote by the Senate or other part of a legislature, they require supermajority votes. So that means that people on both sides of the political aisle have to support a nominee. Mm -hmm. So you get more moderate justices who are acceptable to both sides. The other thing they do that's very important is the justices work very hard. Sometimes in some countries they're required to do this. In other countries they do it on their own. And that is to come up with a consensus decision that they all can support. So you don't see five to four decisions coming out of these courts. You see a single decision that is presented as the opinion of the court. Hmm. And in controversial cases, they may spend several days deliberating and working out something that everybody can feel comfortable signing on to. And when you have that kind of a system, you get the kind of decisions that a court should issue, which are decisions that reflect the views of the full ideological spectrum and that take into account a range of perspectives that will get you to better decisions. And those courts aren't controversial in the mm -hmm. way ours are. There aren't these battles over appointments. People don't know who the justices mm -hmm. are. There aren't these celebrity justices yeah. because it's not about their particular views. It's about getting to a result that works for everybody. And, you know, it's true that we now look to Europe for this kind of a model, but we had this in our country from 1803 to 1941, where really? the norm was, as much as possible, we should issue a single opinion for the court. And hmm. one of the most famous was Earl Warren turning uh, a six to three majority in the Brown versus Board of Education, the school desegregation case in 1954, working, changing, refining, so he'd get a nine to zero unanimous opinion. And you see that in Europe now, and, and we had that in our country, and, and I think that's the model we need to return to. So two questions about that. One is, on Brown versus Board of Education, why would Justice Warren, if he's got, if he's won, I mean, if he's he's on the winning side, and like he is prevailing in Brown versus Board of Education, 
why get it to nine to zero? It, it's the same either way. It, I mean, you either win or you don't. Like, wh- why try to do that? <laughs> well, that's a good question. And, and this was such an important decision, a watershed in our country to to outlaw segregation. And it was very important for the court to speak as a single voice because it was going to be a controversial opinion and many Americans objected to it. Mm -hmm. And so for the legitimacy of the court and its decision and for its persuasiveness, because the court doesn't have a police force to enforce its decisions, it doesn't have a budget to carry out its decisions. So it has to rely on its legitimacy and its public standing. And so speaking as in one voice was very important to make sure that the decision was accepted as a reality. And if you had dissenters, then that would encourage people who didn't like the opinion. Well, if three justices think it's a bad decision, that gives me a license to think it's a bad decision. We've talked about um, how the court has been reinvented, uh, how it might be in the future. And I just wonder, uh, we saw in the last election, Hillary Clinton get millions more votes. Uh, President Trump obviously won in the Electoral College. If we see a six to three conservative majority on the court for, let's say, a number of years to come, does that make you think something has to change? Because there's this kind of asymmetry, right, in terms of the number of people in the country and then how the court is tilting. Well, yes, this is an important consequence of the lifetime appointments. And this wouldn't be the first time where you have the president makes appointments to the Supreme Court, who can be there for decades. And then there's a change in political party in the White House. And so now you have a disconnect between the views of the president and the views of the Supreme Court. And so our current system allows presidents to have a huge impact on policy well beyond their terms of office. And, And that's a real problem. So that's why some people say we should get rid of the lifetime tenure and mm-hmm. have fixed terms as they do in Europe. But I think the deeper problem is that we see the Supreme Court as a, a majoritarian body that, you know, whoever has the majority ought to get to control. And, you know, when the majority can only be 51%, 52%, maybe 55%, what about the other people who are the other 45 to 49% right. of the public? Right. That's a lot of people. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, we see this in the Supreme Court. We see in a lot of ways, our, we have a political system that's based on winner-take-all. And winner-take-all is profoundly unfair to the minority. How do you de-escalate this bitter partisan polarization? I think what we learned from Europe, Switzerland's a great example, is you reduce it by making sure that everybody feels they have a voice in the formulation of public policy. And, and we don't have that now. David Orentlicker is professor of law at the University of Nevada in Las Vegas. David, thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And if you want to learn more about various international models for a Supreme Court, we've got details for you on our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show, 
Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. We also had production help from Caitlin Faltz. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.